Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn it to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. That's in the New Testament. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then uh, Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. It's in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, and some of you are visiting with us, and that, that may be something that, you know, you've got your grandpappy's uh, 95-year-old one that you can barely read because both the text is faded and the, <laughs> and the English was, hasn't been used since Shakespeare. Um, that, we have other copies in the back that you are more than welcome to grab. Those are yours. That's our gift to you. Um, but it's going to be good for you to have the passage in front of you so you know I'm not making this up because that doesn't help anybody, right? So uh, this morning... More than any other, we turn our attention to something wondrous, something mysterious, something bigger than us, and yet something that's also deeply personal, especially to many of us here in this room. And if we were to believe the New Testament, this is a day that is for us. And it is for us whether you are a Christian this morning or not. Because it is the day that deals with public truth. And our passage this morning confronts us with the fact that what we think about what we celebrate today, when we think about the resurrection, no matter which side of it we fall on, it becomes central, central and fundamental to our lives. So if you have your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, our habit here is to stand uh, as we uh, hear the word read before preaching. So if you stand, we're going to be reading uh, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 to 22. This is God's word for us, friends. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. And your faith is vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ is risen, friends. And this is God's word for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, no matter where we are in this place this morning in our walk with Jesus, whether we are still investigating what that might look like, have been doing so since uh, long before we can remember or somewhere in between, we ask that you would meet us as you do right where we are. You would preach your gospel to us, Lord, as we lift up Jesus this morning. We pray that you would draw all of us to yourself as you promised you would. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak. Your servants are listening. And you alone hold the words of eternal life. So speak to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. I have said this before, but I only tend to think of it when it comes around to Easter. But Easter is, I think, probably the best day in all of the year to be a pastor. Um, and I don't just mean because you get to see everybody all spiffy. And um, Although I must say, ladies, the lack of hats. What's going on, right? So anyway, um, so, but it's a great day to be a pastor. It is like, uh, being a pastor on Easter is like being the guy who's delivering the death row pardon to the inmate, handing it to him and saying you're free. It it is like, it is like the, the guy with the oversized check coming to your house, knocking on the door and saying, 
you won. It is the doctor coming to your, to your room with clean scans. It is, uh, it is like, it is like the, the announcer of, of a basketball game declaring that the half-court last-minute shot is good. It is a great day to declare the triumph of goodness over what was seemingly the victory of evil. Jesus is risen. But lest we rush by this, though, our text this morning pushes us. It pushes us to, for whether, whether we are uh, believers in Jesus, whether we believe in everything that we've just said or sung about this morning or not, it, it pushes us to reckon with this singular event. What does it mean that Jesus is risen? What does it mean? Why do we care? And what, what did it do that is so great? That, those are the questions we take to the text today. So if you're a note taker, there is an outline in your bulletin. If you're not, just leave it. Don't worry about it. But if, if that helps you, great. We're going we're gonna to look answering those questions this morning, right? What it is, why we care, and what did it do? Okay, what it is, why we care, and what it does. Let's, let's start with what it is. Now, in saying that, that's rather silly to ask, right? We're talking about the resurrection. What is the resurrection? Well, duh, it's the resurrection. Except that it's as much misunderstood today as it was in Paul's day. Look down at verses 12 to 13, because he says this. He says, if Christ is preached or proclaimed as risen from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection for the dead, then neither has Christ been raised. Now, we'll get to Paul's logic in a second, but first, let's look at what he's debating. New Testament scholars will tell you that what's going on here um, ultimately is not a question of, is the resurrection already happened, or is there something else going on? It's, is, is what we're talking about bodily? Did, when, when, when we're talking about the resurrection, are we talking about the body being raised, or are we just talking about something spiritual? You know, in our day, we would, we would say, like, oh, come on, well, is the resurrection a metaphor, right? A metaphor for a sense of gratitude, or carrying on Jesus' teaching. But for Paul, when he talks about the resurrection of the dead, what he is not talking about is going to heaven when you die. That's not what the resurrection of the dead means. Nor is he talking about feeling thankful. He's talking about having your body raised from the ground, made new. And this is important that we get what this is and what it is not. Paul is talking about bodily resurrection. And that's a struggle for many of us, right? Because for some of us, we're okay with the idea of life after death. That seems okay. Seems like a generally nice thing to think. But the idea that, that we are bodily resurrected, that just seems weird. And for others of us, this whole thing is simply ridiculous, right? As my elementary school principal once told us on a bus drill... I don't know if they still do that or not. They'd load all the kids on the buses, and then they did, and he, he pounded on us. We were all, like, goofing off, and he was this very gruff man, Mr. Tally. And he looked at us, and he screamed, Dead is dead! You don't come back! We all got the idea, right? Mouths closed, turn around. That was the idea. And so for many of us, we see this as, the, as another silly belief of pre-modern people. Those foolish primitives... Dead people coming back. So silly. And so because we bring these things into this discussion, we need to understand very clearly that this entire section, all of what Paul is arguing for in the passage that we read, the passage that comes before, everything in this chapter, in fact, is arguing 
for the centrality of a bodily resurrection from the dead. Not just some kind of continuing on spiritually after you die. Okay? You with me? Good. Now to see why we have to understand the whole story of the world that Paul is operating under. Because it doesn't make sense unless you grasp this. You see, this is one of the big misunderstandings of Christianity. Many of us see Christianity as a set of morals or a set of principles, maybe a set of uh, propositions that you have to believe, to understand, whatever, or maybe just an ethic. But Christianity is a story. And one that has remarkable coherence if everything is kind of left where the story places it. See, the Bible argues that death is not natural. Now, I I know that that strikes against uh, everything we tell ourselves, right? Every time someone dies and we met with grief, what do we say? Death is just a part of life. It's a lie. It's not. And we know it. But the idea that death is not natural is what the Bible argues. It says that God created the world, created us, and he created all things for himself. And he created the world and he created us for life. And, and, and it continues to argue that we, as humans, are made of um, what is called a, a psychosomatic unity. In other words, we are, we are a unity of body and spirit together, made to be united. That neither one of those things, neither our bodies nor our souls, are more us than the other. That we are together us. We were created for God to be in relationship with Him. But we broke that relationship when we decided we want our own independence. Designed for dependence on him, we believed the lie that he couldn't be trusted, and so we needed to be independent from him. And that is where this three-letter word that Christians throw out all the time comes into play, that word sin, right? See, in the Bible, sin is about breaking relationship with God. It is stating that we want to be our own gods, our own arbiters of reality, our own authority, our own source of true life. That's what it is. We see it as breaking rules, like staying out too late for curfew. But the Bible talks about it more in terms of breaking relationship with the one we were created to flourish with. Created to flourish in the presence of God, in relationship with God. But we turned away and said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. So we've gone on our own. And when we did that, several things happened. One, we became changed. Humanity, and and we know this, right? All of us, by nature now, we don't have to be convinced of the lie that God's not for us. We just kind of assume it. i got to look out for myself. God's not really for me. He he wants to use me. Uh, He's going to hold me back from what I really want, from what I really love. That's all of us. So we were changed. But the second thing is that because we broke relationship, we became alienated, like I said, from the one that we were made for. This means that we have this longing, this this desire that we we can't ever seem to satisfy. Can you relate? Because maybe you think that desire is just for a little more success. If I just get a little more success, a little more money, a little more security. Maybe it's if I just get a little more a little more love, uh, a little more pleasure through my sexuality, uh, a little more stuff, a little more money, a little more power, a little more respect. But it's never enough. It's never enough. The Bible says that what we are doing when we are searching for those things is we're actually searching for the one that we were made for. What we are really desiring is a relationship with the God we are alienated from now by nature. So it brings, it, it changes our nature. It 
it uh, alienates us from God. And the last thing is the one that you probably thought I was going to start with, and that's guilt, right? We recoil against that, but stick with me. Because you know that betrayal brings guilt, right? Because you, you're a person, you've been betrayed. I care how old you are, right? If you're young and you've got siblings, you've been betrayed. Somebody took your binky or, you know, like that happens. And as you get older, those betrayals seemingly get worse. And you've done the betraying. If you betray a friend and stab them in the back or cheat on your spouse or your significant other, that isn't a little thing, right? It brings guilt. That is how the Bible talks about sin. It's not, it's not just a, it's not just a, a breaking of curfew. It, it's, like, it's like a breaking of a covenant relationship. It's like breaking marriage, okay? When we as humanity turned from God, betrayed him, sinned against him, we brought guilt on ourselves. And the Bible says death is part of that. Not all of it, but part of it. Physical death, in fact, the scriptures would tell us, points to something greater, a spiritual death, that the Bible describes as being separated from God from all eternity, bearing the weight of our betrayal of him. But we weren't made for this. We were made for wholeness. However, our guilt before God has brought death into the world. So when we're talking about the resurrection of the dead, if death comes because of our breaking of relationship with God, if if resurrection is going to come, if death is going to be turned backwards, then what we are talking about is God coming and changing things. God restoring things. God coming and making right what we've messed up. Resurrection is, in fact, central to the story of the Bible. Central. And apart from it, the story makes very little sense at all. So the resurrection that Paul is talking about here is bodily. It is about the body coming back to life. And it is central to Christianity. Okay? We clear? That's the what. Now let's look at the why. Look down at verses 14 and 16. Paul says, If Christ is not raised, then our preaching is foolish. And so is your faith. Okay? Now stop there. That sounds strong, right? Here's Paul's logic. If there's no such thing as a bodily resurrection, which is what was being argued in the, in the church in Corinth, there's no such thing as the bodily resurrection, then Jesus wasn't bodily raised. And if Jesus wasn't bodily raised, then our preaching is foolish or empty or uh, lacking substance. And so is your faith. Think about that for a minute. Like I said, another way you can translate that word foolish is empty, without substance. Paul is saying, Christianity, with no bodily resurrection from the dead is empty. It has no substance to it. There's nothing there. Now that's weird, right? Because some of us don't really believe in the resurrection, but we consider ourselves Christians. But Paul just kind of stuck his foot in that. What are we going to do with that? But he goes further. Paul says, not only that, we're also false witnesses of God. The ESV that I read says misrepresented. That's a kind way of saying it. We're false witnesses of God, falsely testifying against God that Christ was raised since there is no resurrection of the dead. Now, be clear on this. Paul is saying, if there is no resurrection, then Jesus wasn't resurrected. And if Jesus wasn't resurrected, then the New Testament and those that wrote it, the apostles, those that claim, I witnessed this, they aren't just mistaken. They're liars. They're not just mistaken. They're liars. Do you see the polarity he's creating? I know we don't like those. We like gray. Paul's, Paul's bit, creating very, very uh, bold strokes, right? But you can't get around this. Paul's saying, we declare that God has raised Jesus. If resurrection is not something that God does, then we are false witnesses. Now, 
To us, that doesn't really mean much, right? Because perjury just is something that happens, right? Whether you're a president or on down, perjury just happens. What's the big deal? Well, not in the world of Paul. You see in the Old Testament, if someone gives false testimony, he is to receive the punishment he was trying to get for the one he accused. One of the big ten, right? The big ten, the Ten Commandments, is not bearing false witness, which is the exact word that Paul uses here. False witness. Paul is saying, if, if this isn't true, we are liars. In fact, we are against God, opposing God, enemies of God. Maybe this isn't clear enough. Listen, in verse 12, what we started with, Paul says, if Christ is proclaimed or preached as being resurrected from the dead, that word that that he uses there for proclaim or or preach is a very specific word. It's the word that goes along with his proclamation of the gospel. It's something very particular. What Paul is saying is that the resurrection is the gospel. If there is no resurrection, there is no good news. There is nothing. If there is no resurrection, literally the core of Christianity is ripped out. Because the resurrection, friends, is not a a religious idea. It's not like meditation or prayer. That's a religious idea. The resurrection is a historical one. It is a historical claim. Christianity is based on a historical claim. And Paul says, if it didn't happen... Our gospel is empty and we are liars. You shouldn't be following us anyway. The resurrection is a huge deal. But there's more. Look down at verses 17 and 19. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And all who have died in Christ are lost for good. Okay, listen close. Let's follow this out. There is no bodily resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised. Right? He said that. If Jesus hasn't been raised, then... Christianity is empty of substance, and so is our faith. And if that is the case, then the New Testament is a bunch of lies and actually opposed to God. And if if that is the case, Paul says, our faith is worthless, we are still in our sins, and everyone we hoped to see again is lost forever. That's a logic train you don't want to get on, isn't it? Now, some of you are probably thinking, like, wait a minute, Rick, you're going too far here. Can't we take the good from Christianity? Right? Can't we take the, the morality, the, the ethic of love, the kumbaya, and let's all get together and join arms? Can't we dispense with these primitive ideas, with people like people rising from the dead? Look, I get that. But, but you can't. <laughs> because, you see, here's the difference between Christianity and all other world religions. Other world religions are based on teachings. They're based on maxims. They're based on, on morality. They're, they're, Christianity's not... And that may surprise you, but, but don't check out on me. Because you see, just as the start of the story was about something happening in time, so also is the solution. God created us for himself. And so right there where we, where we failed in the first place, right back, as the Bible would say, in the garden, at the beginning of our human history, where we turned away from him, he promised to make things right. We're stuck in our independence from God, stuck alienated from him. And so if things are going to be right, it is going to be because going to be because he actually does something about it. He moves towards us. He works it out. And so the entire Old Testament, in fact, is the outworking of God's promise to deal with our betrayal, to deal with our sin, to to reconcile us, to bring us back to himself. But the Old Testament ends still longing for an ending. God's people are still waiting, 
longing. Where is the answer we've been promised? The bold claim of the New Testament is that this ending, this fulfillment is found in Jesus. Now listen to me. Not in Jesus' teaching. In Jesus. Not in his preaching. In him. This is why Easter matters, friends. This is why Paul argues this way. I said this last week. Christianity is not advice. You can dispense with advice. It's news. It's about something that happened. It isn't about a philosophy or a spirituality. It's not, it's not a, it's, it's an event. It's not a morality. It's, a, it's about a Messiah. And if that event didn't happen, the rest doesn't matter. That is why Paul says, if we have hoped in Jesus only in this life, then we are to be pitied more than anyone. He's saying, if Jesus isn't risen, if, if the women just went to the wrong tomb, just followed the wrong path. It was before morning, by the way. I mean, maybe they just walked the wrong way. And so also did the two other guys who ran there later after it was dawn. Maybe they just got it wrong. Or maybe, maybe these fishermen overpowered the professional Roman killers guarding the tomb, moved the stone, hauled the body out, and then said, Jesus is raised. And then, oh, by the way, knowing they were lying, decided not to recant when they were killed, when they were crucified, when they were beheaded, when they were tortured for believing something so foolish that they never would have guessed would happen before that day. Maybe that all of that happened. I mean, do you see it this way? Listen, not everyone in this room believes this stuff. So let's be honest with each other here. If you want Jesus' teaching without the Jesus that is preached, it's just simply not possible. What Jesus taught only makes sense in light of what he did. In the end, Christianity is about an event that happened in time and space. It is the, it is, it, look, the Bible isn't full of esoteric teachings or hidden knowledge. It is the testimony of people over and over and over again of God acting in their lives. God acting in history. Bringing slaves from Egypt into a land they were made for. Taking an old dude and giving him family that he didn't have before. Uh, uh, taking a, taking a, a, a lost group of uh, 12 people. And setting the world on fire. It is about something happening in time and space. God acting to set the world that we have broken to rights. So the resurrection of Jesus is not a metaphor for a warm fuzzy in your heart, nor is it the belief of those silly pre-modern people. Listen, ancient people may have not have had a concept for atomic physics, but they knew that dead men don't get up. <laughs> they weren't stupid. Can we please dispense with the historical arrogance this thought that we are so much smarter than people of any other time period. We are not. If this didn't happen, friends, then the rest doesn't matter. What are you doing here? Who cares? Didn't bring your hat anyway, right? But if this did happen, then everything has changed. That is because of what it does, Okay? We've talked about what it is, why it, why it matters. Now let's look at what it does. First, the resurrection gives us certainty of hope. Look down at verse 20. Paul says, but now, 
That's where he turns the corner. He's been dealing in all these hypotheticals. If Christ hasn't been raised, if the, if the resurrection isn't true, then da-da-da-da. Now he says, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits, that's not really an idea most of us engage with day-to-day. So let me explain what this is talking about in the world of Paul. Uh, the first produce of your harvest is called the first fruits. And this was a concept that was understood in three specific ways, okay? In other words, it's the first thing that comes off your, your tree or your bush or your plant or whatever. It's the first thing that comes out of your harvest, which means it's first, okay? It's first. It comes first. It leads the way. That's number one. Number two, the first fruits are representative of something that will come later. And it is, it is representing of something according to its quality. In other words, if you have a plant that just gave you corn, later it's not going to give you tomatoes. Okay? Duh. But that's what this whole point is. It represents what is coming next. So it comes first. It represents what's going to come later. And three, it is the promise of more to come. It is like a down payment. And you know how this works, right? Almost everyone in this room has put a down payment on something. You put a down payment on something, you are promising more of the same to come. In other words, you can't put a down payment on your new car in cash and later come to the, come to the, uh, the car dealership with uh, 17,500 pencils. Right? I gave you dollars before, here's the rest of my payment in pencils. Like, they're not going to take it. It has to be more of the same. Apply this to the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection happened first. He was raised before anyone else. However, the New Testament also claims that because of Jesus' resurrection, what was true of him will be true of all those who put their faith in him. Not, not everyone indiscriminately, but everyone who, put, have, who has faith in Jesus. But lastly, it's a promise of more to come. And I don't just mean us. The claim of the New Testament is that Jesus is the first fruits, not just of the resurrection of people, but of a world made new. A world without sin and death and fear and oppression and pain. A world of beauty and truth. The world as it was made to be. Not by and by or pie in the sky. Like, not that, none of that. Here, life as it was made to be here. In the presence of God without fear or shame for all eternity. That's what Jesus is the first fruits of. And so, listen to me. If you are a Christian here this morning, it is this point I want to leave you with. Because you and I can go through life. We can watch the news. We can, we can watch our own families. We can look down the street in our neighborhood. Or in our own failures and begin to fall in the trap of believing that things will always be this way. No. Jesus is risen. The first fruits has come. And this means, friends, that what you do matters. It matters. Death and sin and evil and brokenness do not have the last word. I know it can look dark. I check my news sites just like you do every morning, right? I know it can look dark. But death and evil and brokenness do not have the last word. I know you can feel beaten down by things outside of you and by your own struggles, but Jesus is risen. And because Jesus is risen, we can look at our trials and what Paul calls our momentary afflictions and see that they are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Because Jesus is risen, 
We can look internally and say that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead by faith in him dwells in us. Conforming us into his image. And because Jesus is risen, as Paul will say in just a few verses in this very chapter, listen to me. Paul will say that your work, your vocation matters. What you do, not just what you do on Sunday, listen to me, Monday through Saturday, that's what I'm talking about right now. Paul says at the end of this chapter, because of the resurrection, your work in the Lord is not in vain. Because Jesus is risen, we can look at our friends and neighbors who seem far from God. We can look at our our vocations and the the working that we do for the flourishing of others and know that if God can raise Jesus, if God can raise us, God can raise our friends, our neighbors as well, God can even use our meager work that we do all day long that seems so futile to bring flourishing to the world. That's for the Christians who are here in this place. But for those of you who aren't Christians yet or, or have considered yourself Christians, but not crazy born-again types, you know, like those who believe the Bible, stick with me on one last point. Hopefully I can convince you to become such crazy people. Uh, here, here's, here's the way this works. Look down at verses 21 and 22. Paul says this, For since death came through man, also through a man came the resurrection of the dead. For since in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. If you've been wondering throughout this whole thing, why do they keep making such a big deal of this? Here it is. Remember what I said. Death came into the world as a result of sin. Our betrayal of God. But God promised to deal with our sin. Which means that if Jesus is raised, if death has worked backwards, if death no longer seems to have a hold, then that is because sin has been dealt with. It's kind of like that science experiment, right? Where you, I've done this with my kids, and you, you, where you put, uh, maybe it's not a science experiment, it's just a cool thing to show kids who haven't figured out the way this works. But you put a candle, or maybe you take one of those jar candles, right? And you've lit it and you're holding it, and then you put the top on it, and eventually it just goes out, right? Well, you don't ever have to touch the fire, do you? Because the whole point is, in some way, it's the oxygen that's keeping the fire going. And once the oxygen is gone, the fire goes out too. That's what this is talking about. That's what this is talking about. See, the Bible argues that you and I are trapped in our sins. Trapped because the problem isn't that we're not good enough. I mean, that's also the problem. But it's not the only problem. It's not that we're not good enough, but that we're not, we aren't dependent on God. Because you and I can make ourselves pretty good. Some of you are really good. But you can't make yourself dependent on God. God has to rescue us. And that is what the New Testament claims he did in Jesus. As what Paul says here, he's talking about Adam, and you're like, Adam, what he's talking Well, he's talking about the first human, the first man, and, and he's, he's saying that Jesus is like the second or the, the last Adam. He lived the life that we couldn't, not just nice. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, Jesus wasn't all the time very nice, but he was perfect. But he also died to bear the weight of our betrayal of God, and, which means that Jesus came, friends, the Bible argues, as our substitute, not our example. You can try to live up to his example. I Go for it. Maybe you can do it better than I can. It, it doesn't work for very long. But here's the good news. We're not supposed to. 
As in, it's not expected of us. Go be like Jesus and I'll rescue you. (laughs) Jesus came as our substitute. Life comes through him, not me and not you. We place our faith in him and we are reconciled to God. So do you see why this is so important? If, If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then his death is simply one more tragic example of injustice at the hands of oppression and power. We've got a million of those. And he would just be one more. But if he was raised, as so many bore witness to, then God has declared sin dealt with in Jesus alone. And reconciliation with him is open to all who would lay aside their own pride and place their faith, their hope, their trust in him instead of in themselves. And so if you are here this morning and this sounds too good to be true, it is too good. But it is very true. If you're here and you're like, people, Rick, people don't rise from the dead. I know, right? I get it. And that is why when loads of people who would never have imagined this ever happening begin to go through the streets and proclaim that this actually did happen and then die horrible deaths rather than recant, we need to pay attention. Jesus is risen, which means for us that our sin really was bad enough for God to die for it, but that his love was strong enough for us, that his love for us was strong enough that he bore it anyway. Come to him. He's not asking you to get it together. You can't. It was radical grace that brought Jesus to live here. It was radical grace that held him to the cross. And it was radical grace, totally apart from you and me, that brought him from the grave. And so embrace this grace this morning. Jesus is risen. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, whether we identify as this or not, we're in this kind of church. We're Presbyterians this morning, which means we're not very good at celebration. But this is the most celebratory fact ever. And so, Lord, I know what's come, what, what came before this in our our pomp and our, our singing and our prayers and our wordiness. We are Presbyterians. We're very wordy, Lord. But for what comes after, I pray that by the work of your Spirit, you would make us to be celebrators of the resurrection of Jesus. Because, because it has happened, everything has changed. It's the old hymn says, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Not just tomorrow, but every day after. The reality is, Lord, that because Jesus lives, there is a living hope that is for us. And so this morning, whether we are Christian or not, I pray that you would help us to embrace this gospel truth again. Help us to embrace the fact that Jesus is risen and that for us that is life and hope and peace with you. Move in our hearts even now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.